All right, everybody, hello. It is the week of January 18th. We are here in the Mariners recording studio. Let me tell you, this thing is phenomenal. This has got all sorts of chords and boxes and things, and it just stirs up in us a passion to see the Word of God reached out into your community, into your car, your iPod, your iPad, and yes, your heart most of all. Kenton B. Shore is here this morning. Woo! He is fired up and he is ready. We talked about the Beatitudes. We're in a series uh, called One. It's one book, one life, one story from Christmas to Easter. Uh, we're looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Matthew. And we began um, to look at something called the Sermon on the Mount, one of five great discourses uh, that Matthew orients his material around. And uh, we looked at a, a passage that in a lot of ways is very easy to understand, and in a lot of ways we kind of miss the main point of the Beatitudes. So KB, give us, give us a take in terms of what you guys covered in Irvine that you thought was uh, exceptionally relevant to the lives of people. Well, what I loved in setting up for the context of it is Jesus comes from the temptation, and then right away what we have is him announcing his message, repent for the kingdom of Heaven, kingdom of God is near. And I love that because it's the idea of Jesus saying, I've come to turn this world around, to turn your life around, which is the demand of the kingdom, right? That we are to turn our life around and commit to going a new direction. And that is the message that we bring to the world. It's the message that changed our life. And I love that, that life-changing message that the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus came to make everything right, to turn it all around. And then the second thing we talked about before we got into the message was the call, where he says, you follow me. And that call was to these ordinary men, which we're going to follow up on this week, to, to follow Jesus. To, and that was whatever he asked of them. It wasn't just a, a nice life, a calm yeah, life, me, an easy life. Oh, you, you want to jump in? I want to jump in because oh, oh, you gotta there jump is, in. There, our churches are full of people who admire Jesus who have a great deal of respect for Jesus, but that's not following Jesus. The invitation is to follow. And Matthew's big point is to present Jesus as Messiah, not just so we'll intellectually agree, not just so that we'll admire him, even as a a figure to be worshipped, but actually put into practice the things he teaches. Right. And so he says to them, look at what following meant. They had to leave their livelihood, their dreams of fishing, building a fishing business, and follow Jesus. And we'll follow up on that this week. But what an incredible statement. And Jesus asked the same thing of us, to give up our small, ordinary dreams and to follow him. And then he steps into this message uh, of blessed, which is this idea of divine favor, uh, God's protection, God's providence, what it means to get God's very best. And as we talked about, there's lots of people who believe they don't get God's best, or they're not living God's best. And even though in Romans it talks about how God is working together for good, for our good, the ultimate good, uh, lots of us, because of uh, pain, sadness, difficulty, hurt in our life, somehow we think God isn't giving us today his best. And so we talked about what that meant, to get God's best. You must have talked about that. What would you do, Mike? You know, we talked about how um, the Beatitudes function in two ways. And and on the one hand, they are this pronouncement of the arrival of God's blessedness 
um, over people for whom it was not thought they would be blessed. To be blessed in the first century was to be Jewish, to be male, to be rich, to be clean. And uh, the, the groups that were mourning or poor in spirit or meek, I mean, those weren't normally the, the, the ideal definitions of what, to, what it was to be blessed. So their pronouncement of grace, but they also confront us with an entirely upside-down system of value and definition of greatness. Greatness is to be in the kingdom regardless of circumstance. And so one of the things we did was to invite people to have that have the idea of what blessing is redefined. Am I blessed even when I don't get uh, the job or even when the diagnosis isn't removed or even when my kids don't come back to the Lord? Is it possible to still be blessed in those moments? And so we spent a lot of time doing that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Pardon me. You're I got dying right there on right, it. Right there because the... I can't think of anything funny. All right. Now, uh, we've got questions, and this is uh, one of the questions is directly related to this. Um, For the Beatitudes to be mostly about our current condition and not future aspirations, it would seem that the best self-protection for getting through this life is to be a very long-range optimist, to use an internal perspective. Would you each care to comment on that? And one of the things, no, what were you going to say? Well, I think that that's missing the point. The kingdom of heaven, uh, God bringing, you know, God turning this world around. Did Jesus turn the world around? Was it accurate for him to say the kingdom of heaven is near? Absolutely. And even in the healing, uh, people's lives was showing the kingdom of heaven is here. So he brought the kingdom. He Mm -hmm. is bringing the kingdom and one day he will bring the kingdom totally. So to see them as only long range is to miss the point that Jesus comes to turn our life around, to turn this world around. The disciples turned the world around in their lifetime, and that's the call of it. So is this person asking the question that this is only something that we get when we die and go to heaven? Is that the question? Um, I think the question is how do you balance yeah, – um, do, you, do the Beatitudes just force us into a long-range eternal perspective, or are they saying something more to that? And we're both saying, no, no, no. There's a now and not yet part to the to the announcement of Jesus. And even in the Beatitudes themselves, two of them, the bookends, are present tense, for theirs is the kingdom. And then uh, the middle ones are future tense. They will be comforted. They will be called uh, sons of God and so on. And so scholars talk about the fact that the kingdom is now and not yet. It has come and it is coming. It was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus. It's consummated in the second coming of Jesus. And we literally live in this middle ground so that we pray for healing, knowing because because the kingdom's come. But we also know that not every prayer for healing is answered because it hasn't come fully. We, we recognize the church is this glorious bride of Christ that's indestructible because the kingdom's come, but it also can be sinful and petty and frail because it's not yet fully here. Uh, we recognize that um, that many of the things that we that we understand, we worship and praise because the kingdom's come and God is at work, and we also learn to lament because the world's still fallen and Jesus has not come back yet. So okay. it's this combination we live in. And the Beatitudes are the character of a Christ follower and what it means to live in the kingdom, that upside-down part of the kingdom. So it is that contrary, the different life. The world says it's the powerful, it's the strong, it's money, it's wealth. Uh, That's not only blessing, but it's also the way to live. And yet Jesus lived a life totally different, humble, serving. And so, you know, the surprise is the poor in spirit truly inherit the earth. And it's true in my life. And I use this as an illustration. Yes, the meek. 
I mean, to be technical, it was the meek that inherit the earth. Well, I'm talking about poor in spirit do what? Get the hit, yes. Okay, so the idea is I live a lifestyle of the kingdom when I live dependent upon God and I live mindful of my spiritual bankruptcy and I don't try, I don't live with that attitude of I can do it on my own, I can make it on my own and I live dependent. And that is true in my life today. And the world says it's the, you know, it's the person who can manipulate, the person who powers up, the person who gets angry and yells down as opposed to, you know, meek you know, a definition is strength under control in part. And that sense of saying, the world says, no, it's the powerful that win. And yet Jesus didn't win by powering up in situations. He was a humble servant and he won. And, uh, and so there is a truth to the Beatitudes of this is the lifestyle that we're called to live. And he goes right into what we're going to talk about this next week about being salt and light and how we change the world by being the people that God wants us to be. Uh, second question, adversity seems to be a very strong teacher. Uh, would, uh, what have you each learned about persevering through hard times? That's part of uh, Romans talks about that we, you know, we have this hope. And the hope that doesn't disappoint comes from the truth that we face these trials, these difficulties, and in facing them, you know, we, we persevere, we endure, God builds character, and that brings hope. And that's one of the, the great messages of the gospel that we tend to want to overlook and say, no, it doesn't have to be that way. I can have a life of comfort or ease, but that isn't the way character is developed. How are we going to know that God is great and powerful in our lives if he isn't able to overwhelm great and powerful problems, if he can't change big character flaws? And so we want him to just sort of round off these rough edges as opposed to radically change us and make us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. And for me to become a patient person, a kind person, there's a, there's a rearranging that mm-hmm. has to take place. And that rearranging takes place as God presses into me, life presses into me. I get into situations where I want my way. I want to be selfish. I want to be self-centered. And then God, I see God's spirit prompting me. Uh, I endure. I persevere through those quitting points of life where I want to just have my way. I want to walk away. And I go, but God, that isn't what you want. You want me to be patient. You want me to learn kindness. You want me to be gentle. And so I, re- I respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God causes me to, you know, that's where God's working in my life. That's where I join the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, being dependent on Him, surrendering to Him. And God uses adversity and pressure to transform me and make me the kind of person that he wants me to be. He doesn't, you know, I don't change when things are good. When things are good and things are easy, I just sort of stay on that road. And that's part of what God does in our life. And the surprise is, James, you know, says one of the hardest teachings, I think, in the whole Bible, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. It's exactly the opposite of what our inclination is. And he says, do that because it actually aids you in the maturing of your faith, which is the most precious thing you have. And so for me, one of the things I've learned through adversity 
has been the truth that Paul learned in 2 Corinthians. I mean, here's Paul. He's probably the most famous church planner, the most famous missionary. Um, he, you know, has written a third of the New Testament, and he's got whatever his thorn in the flesh is, some emotional issue, some physical malady. I mean, scholars disagree as to what he's referring to, but it's clear he didn't like it, and he wanted it gone. Yeah. And God just simply said, I'm not going to take it away because I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient. And I've actually learned that, that the surprise has been, as I look in the rear view mirror. I never look, I, I never learn it looking ahead. Everything seems so overwhelming when you look at ahead, but when you look backwards, I literally see, oh my goodness, God, you were not only present, but you were active and working on my behalf the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. In Romans 5, it says we rejoice too, that when we run into problems and trials, because we know that they help us develop endurance and then endurance is strength of character and character gives us hope. And I like what you said. It is only looking backwards that we see it. Yeah. By faith, we believe it as we move through it and we trust God. That's right. But we see it clearly in hindsight. That's I right. I think that's important. Well, and, and that's a huge part. What I like that you're saying, it's a huge part of the gospel. The gospel is not health and wealth and the, just the shiny road to success and a rose-covered path through life. The gospel is in a fallen world, you will see God faithful. If you learn to trust him, if you learn to revere his name, and if you learn uh, that adversity is part of the deal, life in a fallen world is part of the not yetness of the kingdom. Right. And, and there is a hope that, that the world won't always be this way. My circumstances won't always be this way. But I think you don't see God's faithfulness until you find him faithful in the tough times too. And that's a gospel that works in the real world. It's a real world gospel because that's the way the world works. And while it's tempting to have that health and wealth kind of magical thinking, uh, it's just a suspended view of reality. That's reality right. is there's a lot of pain and suffering, and yet God says, you know, in the oracles of destiny in Genesis, it's, you know, wow. sin pounds us back into dust. But the gospel is the reversing of that and saying, even though there's pain and difficulties of life, God will take what would destroy you and pound you back into dust. And now God's saying, no, this is what's going to refine you and build you into the kind of person that I want you to become. All right, last question. Well said. <laughs> uh, and this is, this is a question that I'm sure not a lot of folks um, think about or wrestle with, but we want to include it because we never want you to be surprised at some of the stuff that's out there. Uh, the question is, some scholars disagree on who actually wrote the book of Matthew, whether it was Matthew or somebody else. What say you? Also, Matthew seems to be copied from other gospels. Why? And, and this is a very important question uh, because you get into something that not a lot of Christians are really aware of, and that's this whole level of scholarship called form criticism that has to do with, hey, who wrote these things and, and who shaped them and, and how do we know and can we know? And those are all fine questions. Uh, the first thing we want to do is we want to point you to a resource that would help. You know, just the study Bibles that you can buy in our bookstore, they all talk about the Gospels, it talks, it gives you at the very beginning an introduction to the Gospels. It talks about this problem, how they overlap, where they differ, what people think about it. And it's great to study that because what you'll find is there's wonderful answers. Uh, there's real questions, but there are really great answers, and it gives you more confidence in your Bible. And we want, ultimately, we want you to research it. We don't want to be 
um, the kind of folks that just say, hey, take our word for it and don't ever think about it yourself. So so look, find a good study Bible if you don't have one. There are lots of good books out there on this. Our quick view is simply that church uh, all the Gospels are technically anonymous. They don't say love Mark or, you know, uh, uh, grace and peace signed Matthew or anything like that, like Paul's letters do. But the early church is unanimous in, in their a- attribution of the book of Matthew to Levi Matthew, the Matthew we know. And there is no good reason to overturn that, especially when if they were going to invent a name to attach to a Jewish gospel, Matthew would not be the name you'd invent because he would was a tax collector. He, he was a sellout. He was somebody who wouldn't have been loved by the faithful Jewish community. And so there are lots of more to say about that. We encourage you to study it yourself, but we want you to know there's stuff out there, uh, as Kenton said, good questions and very good answers. So with that, we will continue the conversation next week. Send us your questions. If you have any questions about the chronological uh, Bible readings that we're going through together, go ahead and, and send those, those in. sons of God, the Nephilim? The Nephilim. <laughs> yes, in Genesis 6. Um, or Michael come back and explain that perfectly perfectly to you next week. Next week. Bye.